spiritual journey, I want to hear from those who have taken this path before me. This podcast focuses on them and listening to their stories uninterrupted. My name is Hiba Masood, and I invite you to reflect on the trajectories of their lives and the guidance and blessings provided by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala along that journey. As a college student, Ansi Tamara Gray became intrigued by the idea of the hijab. She had grown up Lutheran, but liked the protective nature of the hijab, and so began wearing it. Within a week, she purchased an English translation of the Qur'an. She was stunned to read verse 35 in Surah Al-Ahzab that addresses both men and women as equal believers. As a feminist, this appealed to her, and she decided to take her shahada. In those early years as a Muslim, she found herself frustrated with the often confusing answers she was receiving to religious questions. So she decided she would study sacred knowledge. She had heard of female teachers in Syria, which appealed to her. Her plan? Marry a Syrian and study in Syria. She would end up spending 20 years in Syria, moving back to the United States in 2012. Today, most people know Ansi Tamara Gray as the founder of Daybreak Press and Rabita, an organization dedicated to serving women's spiritual and educational growth. In this special episode, I interviewed Ansi Tamara Gray for the Women's Circle at the University of Toronto. She talks about female scholarship and the need for a woman's organization by women for women. Um, first of all, so nice to be here with all of you. Um, yeah, so I, I'm from Minnesota. That's where I live now. And I grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota. I was born here and I, was my father was Catholic, my mother was Lutheran. They didn't have a super um well, they got divorced when I was 11. And so at that point I really was all of our lives we were Protestant and I was a suburban girl. My both of my parents were educated. Uh both of them cared about education. They're both very until they're actually both even now very social justice in their own ways. I don't know that every young social justice person today would define both of my parents in that way, but in their own uh, definitions, they've always been, they care about politics, they care about people. And so I grew up like that and I didn't like living in the suburbs. I went to a suburban high school. I was, I felt like I was, uh, I felt like there was a whole world out there that I wasn't seeing so that was definitely a part of my youth but I was also very I was a very Christian religious Christian as a teenager and I cared about my I cared about that um, I was also raised in the eight, late 70s early 80s when feminism was still in its second wave and it, that all women's women's rights really mattered to me and I would say the biggest issue at the time was uh, really what the Me Too movement is today. Back then, we were talking about sexual harassment at work. That's what we were talking about in the late 70s and early 80s. 
so that's how I was raised. And I lived, um, I mean, it was a, I was a suburban white girl. What can I say to you? I, I was academic. I was smart. I, I liked high school for its learning. I wasn't, um, I was involved in theater and things like that. So I worked, I was very, I don't know. I feel like it was kind of a typical American sort of Midwestern childhood and teenagehood actually. Beautiful. Um, thank you so much for that introduction. So um, how did you learn about Islam? How did you, what was kind of that journey like for you? Uh, the, I came to Islam because in the summer before I went to university, I had what I called at the time a crisis of faith. And that was a crisis of the Christian faith. And it was because I really did not want to worship a man. I, I just sort of, I was 17 years old. I had just graduated high school. And I, why am I going to worship a man? I didn't want to worship a man, which was Jesus. And even the way that God was spoken about as the father, that also felt very masculine and male. And so I, I really struggled in that summer. And I was very concerned about myself because I really was a believer and I believed in God. And I was, I was concerned about my my state of, of belief. So when I went to university in the fall, I decided that the best cure for this is to take a class and learn some, learn more. And I was very well-versed, or at least I thought I was well-versed in the New Testament. I was pretty sort of, I wasn't an evangelical 100%, but I certainly hung out with evangelicals and had my evangelical moments. So I, that evangelicals tend to feel they know a lot about the New Testament. So there was a class about the Old Testament, introduction to the Old Testament. I thought, okay, I'll take this class. This will help me. This will save my faith. This way I won't lose any more of what I've lost. And after three weeks, I could no longer call myself a Christian. And at that point, I was really, I, that was upsetting to me. And I it was on one hand, it was okay, that's just the way it is. I can't be a Christian. I cannot follow this religion because of ABC. But at the same time, I didn't feel like I was an agnostic or an atheist. I felt like there was a religion that God created us and wouldn't leave us alone. And there was a religion that we should be following. Well, I looked around at a number of different religions at the time, wasn't interested in Islam at all, because Islam was that religion that oppressed women. And as a person who came from a feminist, women's rights background, that was not appealing to me. I spent oh, three, four months looking at different religions, got really frustrated. And at one point in December, I asked a young man what his religion was. And he said, he's a Muslim. <laughs> I say it like that because actually he was Arab, but he still like he tried to English Englishize, you know, Americanize. He, he didn't say Muslim. And this is this is the 80s, 1985, four. This is 1984 still. And I laughed at him and he said, Oh, you know, why are you laughing at me or whatever? And he got a little bit offended and proceeded to tell me the story of his sister. He wasn't religious at all. But his sister had been, and he was trying to tell me how his sister was, was a feminist and loved Islam and loved hijab. And I don't know if he was just trying to be kind of shocking to me, 
just how, what can I say to shock this young American girl? Or if there was a little more sincerity in that, but whatever it was, it hit me. I was like, oh, and I, I was so young and naive. I was thinking, oh, this hijab, that sounds kind of cool. Maybe this can solve some of the sexual harassment issues that we're dealing with. I thought maybe I'll bring this idea to the National Organization of Women. I never did that. Instead, next day or the next day, I thought, okay, I need to learn more about this religion. Actually, I put on hijab that day. Uh, I started to wear hijab that day. I wasn't a Muslim, but I thought, well, let me try this cool idea out, this idea of hijab. Maybe that will, maybe that would be a good tool for American women to use to fight this. It was an epidemic. We were just learning about sexual harassment in the workplace and everybody felt very shocked. It's much worse, in my opinion, worse even than the Me Too movement because the Me Too movement, we knew about it, but it was now, it's like we're, we're talking about it. Anyway, so I put on hijab. Then I thought, well, if this religion has this thing in it called hijab that is I like, and I think it's cool, maybe it has other important aspects that I'll appreciate. And so I started to, I actually went and bought an English mushaf. And I mean, these are, all of these events happened very quickly. Uh, within the next couple of days, I had bought a mushaf. I had asked a few questions. I had prayed my first prayer. And really more of a spiritual, because of a spiritual experience rather than a, an intellectual one, I decided to become a Muslim. And I did. Now, it, that's, I became a Muslim. This was pre-Google for all of you who could not imagine a world without Google. It was pre-Google. It was pre-internet. There wasn't anything, any button I could push to get information. And I was kind of an academic type. I really was interested in reading and knowing things. So this was a different world for me where I entered Islam because of a spiritual experience. What happened is I had bought this Mus'haf, Quran in English, and I had brought it back to my room. I had asked some questions of that same young lad <laughs> and he had written down the prayer for me. And he was really funny because he kept saying stuff like, you don't want to do this. This is too hard. But I just, I wanted to know. He, he wrote down the prayer for me and he told me about Wudu. And I brought this prayer and this wudu back to my room and I, I, was, I opened up the Quran and it opened up very, the very first verse, Inna wal muslimat wal wal If you know the verse, wal in Surah al which is in 10 qualities of human beings where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala lists them by saying, the male Muslims, the female Muslims, the male believers, the female believers, or the, the men who are Muslims, the women who are Muslims, depending on how you want to translate it. And I was astounded. If really, in all honesty, I literally was like, whoa. So my thought was, you can laugh at this one. Remember that I was a little bit evangelical. I was kind of a missionary. I was a young one, but I was active in the whole evangelical type of come to Jesus movements that were back then. And so when I read this, I thought, oh, Islam does have equality. Muslims just don't know because I had certainly seen the news and experienced what I interpreted as oppression of women at the time. I thought, oh, Muslims just don't know what their Quran says. Now, remember, 
as an evangelical, I was all about bringing Christians back to Christianity. So it wasn't a far, it wasn't difficult. It wasn't a big leap for me to say Muslims don't know about their own religion. That, and I, then my next thought, this is the funny piece, is that they need someone to teach them. And of course, I'm thinking about myself, even though, first of all, I'm not a Muslim yet. And second of all, I've read one verse of the Quran. And I'm like, I need to go out there and be a da'iyah. So I guess it was just in my personality, but the, so then I read a few more verses and at that point I did get a little bit scared. And so I got up, I prayed to this prayer that the young kid, the kid had given me and I prayed this prayer. And at the very end of it, I made dua, Ya Allah, if this Quran, this is from you, if these are your words, that I'm a Muslim. But if it's not your words, it is not from you, then you need to tell me right now because I really don't want to do this. And it was a very spiritual experience. I believed when I raised my head from that prayer, I believed the Quran was from Allah. And that is how I entered Islam now. That actually means that my first month and a half or so was really hard because I put on hijab. Now I got to learn how to pray. I got to do all this stuff. I don't know anything about it. There's no Google. I don't have support. And yeah, it was tough. It was tough. I did. I was very lucky that I... I first met Malaysian students and they were, I wouldn't have made it without them. I think I can fairly say that. I wouldn't have made it without them. I moved in, I ended up moving in with them eventually and they helped me a lot. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that, um, about some of the struggles you had when you made that transition in your life and how you, how you kind of navigated them? Um, yes, I can talk more about that. It was, it, looking, I think actually in modern terminology, I probably have a little bit of PTSD. There was, and it was the Muslim community in the early, well, this would have been the middle eighties was not really understanding the complex issues that a convert is coming to Islam with. And really it was all about how everything is haram all spirituality was sucked out of the faith. And every book I read about women did not reflect that verse that I had read. So I was, I was in a bad state. And there was more than once where I thought, I don't know, can I, I don't know. It, it, in fact, the spirit, if it wasn't for that spiritual experience, I wouldn't have hung on. I, I couldn't, I couldn't deny my own experience. So it was really hard. It was really tough. The between, you know, community issues, um, even friends that or people that I was meeting that were perfectly nice. This is not a complaint about them, but they just weren't the kinds of just we weren't alike in any way other than being a Muslim. So as far as being friends, we were friends, but I certainly didn't tell them about my own uncomfort, discomfort or my fears or my any of that. And also, they just thought differently than I did. Either they thought differently about how they lived or, and I'm not talking about the Malaysians here, although certainly we ate different kinds of foods and things, but at least we were all students together. Like some of the others that I met, they just come, they're at a completely different life stage. They were swallowed up, some of them in the hobby movements of the middle eighties. And yeah, it was tough. I really am grateful to Allah for the help that he sent me. I met, um, somebody gave me the phone number of a woman in California who I ended up calling. 
And I would call her and ask her all of my, she was my Google, I guess. I, I had to use a pay phone. Like I'd have to literally put quarters and continue, keep putting quarters in this phone to talk to her. And I would call her and ask, why can't I pray when I have my period? Why can't I this? Why can't I mean, this kind of stuff that might seem really basic and well, it seems basic and silly to me now, but at the time it was, I, I just didn't know how to deal with the, I, the tone of the books. And I wasn't even always able to ask the questions in a way that I could now, obviously, but I mean, that's maybe not a fair comparison. And she was wonderful. She always had a, an answer that really fed into my need to believe in that verse that I had read. I needed to believe that that was true, that the verse I read was true. And her responses to me were always, she didn't, I, I didn't vocalize that to her, but her responses to me were always really positive. The, the word revert bothered me. And I mean, people, you know, the problem in the 1980s is that someone like me, everybody want, everybody wanted me to marry their male relative. And so, yeah, it was very insulting. I was really hurt more than once. I remember one time where a lady said to me, come and watch a movie with me. And I was so starved for friendship. I was so starved for, for a female friend. And I was like, a movie? Oh my God. She was going to show me a movie of Rabi Adawiya. And I had her, I knew who she was. I was so excited. So it's an old movie. I said, that's okay. And I was really broke at the time, like really broke. And I would measure how I spent my gas money. But I went to her house because this was important. I got out of the car. I walked in. First thing, here's her brother sticking his hand out to shake his hand, shake my, to shake my hand, which I'm like, this is 1985. You know, 50,000 people had told me how haram that was. And here's this boy that wants to. Now I've spent my gas money to come and meet her brother. And it very quickly became very clear to me. I was so mad. I was really like, that was that was kind of a straw that broke the camel's back. I was just like, that's, I can't handle this. Um, and that's one example though. I mean, there were other examples of things that were just like, wow. And in the end, I, I just, I had found out that, um, well, and this is answering, not really answering this particular question, but I was so frustrated by the community that I found out there were women teachers in Damascus. And so I said, well, if everyone wants to marry me, let me find someone from Syria. <laughs> so I can go there. This is before Hamza Yusuf taught the world that people could travel and go and learn. I did, he wasn't even around at the time. I mean, I mean, he was around, but I had never, you know, he wasn't on the stage, so to speak. That's a great, great segue. Um, better than I could have ever planned. How, how did you decide that you wanted to study? And I, I guess, how did you choose Syria? I guess you knew there was female teachers there. Well, how did I decide I wanted to study? That was a, that was a necessity yeah. because what I was being fed was not, it wasn't, you have to understand, like you guys probably weren't even born then. In the nineties, the late eighties and the early nineties in America, three things happened to me that were, that are indicative of where the community was. And I know that in some areas in the country, it's still like this. And I hope that anyone who's in a community like that who hears me can know that it's, it doesn't have to be like this. And this is not the only way to understand 
this beautiful religion because this is a beautiful religion. And even though I have some painful stories to tell, those are those happen to me because not because of cruel people, because of people that were ignorant. That's the way I tell myself the story. And so, I mean, for example, I, I, and when I first became a Muslim, I was very heavily influenced by this literalist interpretation. And that was what was really killing me and killing my spirit. I'd come from Christianity where there was all this spiritual stuff. And now it was just like literalist stuff. And it was tough. And in fact, what happened is when I met the woman that I gave, the person who gave me the phone number, I actually flew out to California to meet her. And I discovered that she dressed in a way that was to me much more Western. Now, mind you, she was wearing full hijab. She also wore a jilbab-like thing, but it wasn't dragging on the floor. She wasn't wearing, like I used to wear a scarf that went all the way down to my wrists sometimes, like, okay. And it was, it, she had, she seemed like, you know, she could move, she could go around and all that. I really admired it. So I changed how I dressed. When I changed how I dressed, I did not take off hijab at all. And I didn't like, it wasn't, you, I fulfilled the full definition of hijab, but nonetheless, I had, people asked me like, why? And I said, well, I met this woman. She's like a teacher for me. Oh my God. Kafert. So I was literally brought into a what do you call that when an intervention, an intervention where some ladies brought me to a place to tell me, listen, listen, we think because now you have a teacher, crazy stuff. And I was really hurt that, I mean, I was like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? What's wrong with you? And I had already begun on the path of knowledge. And that's probably what saved me from that day. Because when we got up to pray, one of the women went to be the imam. And as we said, Allahu Akbar, I noticed that she was wearing a sweater with very large knits. You know how you can have a sweater that has very sort of a very loose knit that shows what you're wearing underneath. And she wasn't wearing anything underneath. And she's praying as the imam. And she's telling me, I'm the one who's making a mistake. MashaAllah. So... I was very young and that helped me to feel like you don't know anything. How, if you're praying like this, then you don't know anything. So don't even talk to me about my decisions and what I'm doing. So that was a blessing, but it was still like, that's one of those stories. So what I'm saying here is that it became a necessity to learn about this religion because I knew I needed to learn. That was my only path to, to, um, that was my only path. That was the only path. Anything else, I would be sus- I would be susceptible to what I began to call in my head all the craziness. And because I'm this woman who had told me about women teachers in Damascus, I was by this time as well very disillusioned with Muslim men. Extremely, all these men that kept sneaking up behind women to marry me—they didn't even know me. I was just pretty, and I had a green card, and I wore a hijab. I felt very. Uh, it, it wasn't complimentary to me. I know that for many young women, they're very complimented to feel like other men think they're pretty. This is why the makeup industry makes a billion dollars a year. But for me, I was insulted. You're going to, I was so insulted. You know, nothing about me. You know, you don't know if I'm smart or not smart. You don't know anything about me. And you just are all goggle eyed over me. I was, it was 
I mean, as you can tell, maybe I'm over, I should be, I should pull this back because a long time ago and it's over, but it was really hard. It just was not, I didn't like it. So I liked the idea of not learning from men. And of course I've changed. I respect male teachers. I respect male shiuch. I just want to say that because I'm talking about myself at night 18 right now and those first years. And because, because I was able to meet incredible women teachers who could teach me about Rasulullah without telling me Rasulullah, Rasulullah, for the whole world needs you to be an Egyptian wife or a Malaysian wife or a Syrian wife or a Yemeni, whatever, give whatever nationality you want. Because that was definitely the rhetoric in the eighties that if you can, you know, you can, and you really, and I say eighties, but there's still that rhetoric. A, a gentleman asked me, Oh, I want to marry a convert. And I said, okay, why, why a convert converts are tough to marry. He said, well, I have children and converts make good stepmothers. I said, you know what? That's that's a good reason. That's one of the first reason, good reasons I've heard. I said, but I just want you to know that as you're getting that piece of her culture, you're also going to get the rest of her culture. Listen to what he said to me. No, 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 no. She's a Muslim now. I was like, she does not become country of your origin because she's a Muslim. This is a piece of her culture that you like. Mashallah. And she will bring other pieces of her culture that you might not like, but that's all a package. Anyway, I didn't send him anybody because I was just, I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to send someone to be miserable. So anyway, sorry about that. It's like way there. But um, so yes, so I really decided I needed to learn. And when I heard that there were women, and at the time, like I said, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, mashallah, he did such a great thing for the Muslim Ummah in that he reminded us that we need teachers. He reminded us that we need teachers. And he really encouraged people to go overseas. Now, all of that happened after I had left. So I heard about him years after he was already on the stage when I was in Syria. And there wasn't anybody talking about this. This was something that in my mind, I was like, I need teachers and I want women teachers. And I, maybe because of my suburban background, maybe because I was very limited and I was, my family was not an international family. We didn't, we didn't, we went up Northern Minnesota for our vacations. You know, I didn't imagine or think that I could go somewhere on my own. It never occurred to me. So at the time, like I said, it's actually not a joke. I decided that I'll marry a Syrian man because at least then I can get to Syria and I can... In fact, I, I wanted to marry that lady's brother because I thought she has the connection. So then I can, um, I can get, and I can learn as I want to. It was all about how can I grow? How can I learn? How can I, how can I get over this stage of this weirdness that Western Islam, I couldn't stand it back in the eighties and nineties. I couldn't wait to get out of here. And I left, lived in Syria for 20 years, came back in 2012 and didn't see any change. That's, there is change now, mashallah, but I really was surprised at how little change there was in 2012. Can you talk about some of your teachers that impacted you the most? Yes, absolutely. One of my favorite topics. I, I have learned from many people. The woman that I would be very happy to talk about uh, really, I would say, changed the trajectory of my life. 
Uh, her name was, may Allah have mercy on her because she passed now, but her name was Doctora Samira Zayed. And she was a teacher of Sira. She was a teacher of many things, but her specialty era, area was Sira. And she's published many books and we were able to translate one of her books. And she was able to see that it was translated before she passed, alhamdulillah. I first met her in 1980, 1990, being babied by everyone. I was a convert. People thought I was so cute. Masha'Allah. Can you recite the Fatiha? I can't tell you that I, even as recently as five years ago, somebody asked me that. <laughs> oh my God. So, I mean, this sort of treating converts like babies and children are like our toy things or our playthings or things we get to control. I, you know, you can ask my husband, I am not, I struggle very much with someone trying to control me and being patronized, especially. And that pa I was patronized all the time, and all the time. People are nice. They're trying to be nice and sincere, but they just, it just, for me, I was, I felt like, ah. so this woman did not do that at all. <laughs> In fact, she did the opposite. I mean, she was tough on me, tough on me. She was insistent on me doing the work. She was insistent that I need to learn this. She asked me difficult questions. She pushed me in my ibadah in ways I could, at the time, I was like, huh? You want, you want me to what? That, and with anybody else, I would have been like, you don't mean me, right? Because I know that everybody thinks I'm out of this, but I could never have said that to her. And nor did I think she didn't mean me. So an example is I could barely read Arabic, barely. I could phonetically decode it. I mean, I got, I ended up because I would want it because of all the struggles and because everybody was chasing after me, I ended up getting married pretty young and having children young. So I'm, I'm married at 19. I have my first child at 21. I'm all of the, you know, I'm getting my master's degree. There's a lot going on in my life. So I did learn how to phonetically decode, but I wasn't, and I had already started studying Arabic, but I wasn't great at it at all, at all. And she said to the entire class, this is on a visit, by the way, I wasn't living there yet. She said, um, I want everyone to read Surah Al-Baqarah every single day. This is 49 pages of Quran. And I was like, what? <laughs> that was, I mean, literally, it would have taken maybe 12 hours. I don't know how long it would have taken at that point. So I was there that summer and I could not, I mean, she was, she talked about it at the end of the summer and I took that instruction with me as a goal. And literally, if I think about the blessing of that goal, I could never I just can't even imagine it. I first went to a friend of mine who's now teaching with me in the Ribat Institute, Academic Institute, and said, Dana Dahman, we were, we were neighbors. I lived in Pennsylvania. She lived in New Jersey. So we were neighbors. 
But I, I went to visit her and she sat in painstakingly over two to three days. We read through the whole thing together. When I say over two to three days, I mean, not obviously, obviously I would go for a period of time and have to come back because, you know, I had my husband and everything. So, but then, uh, then the next time I tried it, I said, okay, I just have to get this done. And I sat, I sat the dining room chair in the middle of the living room, locked all the doors. I was in an apartment that I could do that in and kept my, I had a toddler at the time, just kept her in that room with me. I had all the furniture was out just because she couldn't get into any trouble in other words. And I said, I'm not leaving this chair until I'm done. And it took me three hours, three hours to struggle through it. And I'm sure would, anyone who had listened to me at the time would not have recognized Surah Al-Baqarah, but I did it. I finished it. And, um, and that's what I mean by how she pushed me. She didn't take any year just a convert type of thing from me. And that was what I needed. That was the health that I needed. On top of that, her subject was Sira. And I came from Christianity where we elevated Jesus to uh, a status that we should not have. And I did, I was evangelical. So there was that Trinity aspect, the son of God aspect. There are many Christians who don't, but I definitely was of that. I came into an Islam at the time that did not want to celebrate Prophet Muhammad, did not want to sing about him, did not want to talk about him in poetry. If you even, if the word mulid just started coming out of your mouth, you would be accused of bid'ah and all sorts of other things. So I had entered into a community that was very dry around Rasulullah and really only talked about Badr Uhud Khandaq, Badr Uhud Khandaq, Badr Uhud Khandaq. So I had come to this and I knew that. I, I didn't have a healthy relationship with the Prophet at all. Not, I didn't even know how unhealthy it was. But I was afraid of people, not only because I came from Christianity, but also the Muslim feeling was be very afraid. Be very afraid of how you feel about Muhammad sallam. Don't make him like Jesus. And then on top of that, what I was being taught was not... <sighs> Of course, everything about the Prophet was beautiful, but it wasn't taught to me as beauty. And and then on, on top of that piece as well, there was a real pushback against anything that would be more beautiful. So here I am with this woman whose life is the Prophet. Her, her research life was the Prophet. Her lessons were his life. And she had a deep understanding of who she was, who he was, and what this uh, Sira was about. And she saw it from all different aspects that I, I don't believe anyone alive at the time could see it from. And there I was placed in front of her with it was like the cure was right there. And it was the cure. I won't say that it was a pill because we always want a pill. It was not a, a pill that I was able to take. It was time, work, hard work. But really, it was definitely, it was life-changing. And her love of Rasulullah, along with her intellectual cap capability of describing his life and talking about it very seriously, but with love, I don't know. <laughs> it wasn't just some kind of fluffy romantic stuff. Like this was serious, detailed stuff about his life, but underlined with the kind of love that is necessary. That is necessary. 
she definitely changed the trajectory of my life. And I, I learned, I loved her very much. And I, I want to say that because I think as in the Western culture, Western culture has taught us to be afraid of the word love and to associate love only with romantic love and with, uh, excuse me for saying this, but with sexual feelings. And so the, the fact I, there is something as spiritual love. There is something about loving awliya, the people of God. And she was most certainly, in my estimation, of the people of God. And I truly loved her. And and she changed my life. And alhamdulillah, for what she did for me and everything that I learned from her. And I, you know, I, I, I'm a poor student, but I am a, I, I'm a student that loved. When I say I'm a poor student, I mean, I, I, she had so much to give. I, I didn't take everything that I could. But alhamdulillah. Thank you for um, sharing about your teacher in such a beautiful way and and for speaking about love in that way. I, th- I think that's very beautiful to hear and refreshing. Um, so, so you're in Syria for 20 years. Um, you come back. What um, What is on your mind? How does Rabata come about? Yeah. So I, can't, I was there when the war started. And my I, I, when I came back here in 2012, I was coming back to my country. I was coming back to my family. In fact, the way Allah planned it, I had a daughter who had gotten married in 2010 before the war, and her husband was a Fulbright scholar, and they were in Minnesota. So there was all of that blessing from Allah. But I was, I was, it was extremely difficult time for me. And I remember sitting in the car and thinking about a couple of really big deals. One is that I had just gotten back from this tour. So uh, some of my students, when I came the summer of 2012, they said, you're here, let's take you around and let you speak. We want you to speak to people. We want people to hear you. And I said, okay. So we did that. I was really, in all frankness, uh, shocked by the lack of growth in the Muslim community for women that I saw, I recognized that it was very limited. What I saw is what I saw and I could be completely wrong, but that's how I felt. And maybe it was part of the divine design so that I would feel the way I felt. And so I had this experience of saying, wow, (laughs) what's going on? And then at the same time, everything that was happening in Syria was very devastating to me. And I knew that I could do nothing about it at all, nothing. And I I was sitting in this car and and along with that, there were some stories of different people who were losing their faith in this and that. I was sitting in this car and I said to myself, Tamara, you can't do anything about Syria. But if you do have in in your capacity to take what Syria gave you and give it to this community that you've just been reintroduced to, and it was because of that that I said, okay, I got we got to do something here. And it's it started with a pilot robot class to see, well, will this online learning work? And that was very well received. And most important to me was to feel like in an online learning class that I could interact with students, not only in an intellectual way, but there could be a spiritual interchange that there could like as though we were in an actual room together that that same spiritual interchange that happens in a room could happen online. And it, it did. I felt it did in that first year. 
And so I said, let's do this. And I had some wonderful young women, students of mine, who took my hand and made it happen. No, nobody ever does anything on their own. But certainly, I had support from my own teachers in, in Syria. They, they were very supportive of what I was doing. I had students that stood right up and helped me in ways you cannot imagine. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala really opened the way for this to happen too. Uh, and also I had uh, support from early support from my family. And, you know, the other thing is I couldn't find a job. If I'm honest with you, in my first year back, I could not find a job. And so I had a lot of time and I don't do well with a lot of time. Like I got it. You can only clean your house so many times before you say, okay, now what? As, I mean, I mean, if you have a two-year-old or a three-year-old, maybe you have to clean it more often, but my baby was in grade 10, you know, I mean, so I was, I needed to work. And this was the work that, and it's like Allah held back in other jobs so that I, I feel that Allah held back in other jobs so that I would do this work. It was, yeah, alhamdulillah. So that's how we started. We started with Rebat and then we realized we need books. We did Daybreak Press. Daybreak is a project of Robota and it's, it's also a nonprofit. So it's, it's part of the, it's part of how we keep Robota alive, the sustainability of a nonprofit. I'm sure Yasmin understands that particular difficulty in finding enough income streams especially because most of our donors are women, God bless them. But um, many women have plenty of money to donate. And actually women are fantastic donors, but also men are in our community. Very oftentimes men are controlling the purse strings. So we wanted to make sure that we had more than one income stream to support the work. However, that's not why Daybreak Press was started. I'm just letting you know that it is nonprofit and, and all proceeds go back to refund the projects. This is project number two. After we started the academic program, we realized, okay, there are two things that we realized at the same time. One is that if you read, I mean, people are readers and our kids are being taught to read at school as they should be. I mean, we want our kids to read, but the limited number of books they can read where Muslims are normative characters or where Islam plays a positive role in a Muslim's life are so, there's so few, there are a few more now, but back in 2012, it was almost nothing. And actually Najia, who's our head of publishing, she did a whole a re research about that. See like how many books are in the library and all of this. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but the vast difference between Christian books, Jewish books, and then Muslim books. And of the Muslim books, the only ones that were there, there were like a small handful, the majority of the, them, Islam is the problem. So the, the, the plot was Islam is the problem in this person's life. Let's get, help them get rid of Islam so then they can become a better Muslim, the better person. And that, that includes, by the way, part of the English canon. If you look at Frankenstein, you look at Jane Eyre and these kinds of things. So there's a real problem in literature that is for adults and also for children around how do we see Muslims. And that problem is also for non-Muslims because non-Muslims are reading about Muslims in literature and in, and in internalizing all of this Islamophobia and Orientalism without realizing it because often they're stuck in there inside characters and side comments without them knowing. And so the first thing we said is we need to change that. We need to publish books and get these books in public schools. Well, we had we had big dreams. The public school piece are still waiting for to figure that out. We do have some in some public schools, by the way. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. But of course, I want I wanted I, I've wanted something much bigger than that. But we have some, alhamdulillah. 
and I'm, I'm very passionate about our novels. I feel like our novels are really good. They're well-written and they deal with issues. They don't deal with, they're not didactic, silly. And then Layla woke up in the morning and she prayed Fajr and she brushed her teeth and she said, good morning, mom. And her mama said, don't forget to drink your milk. Like who wants to read that? You know, nobody wants to read that. And so they, they deal with real issues. Pieces is about mental illness and acquaintance is about, and an acquaintance is the most Muslimy one because the main character is grappling with being this very goody two-shoes girl who's now in love with Jason. Now what? And, and it's very, it's, there's a lot of complicated stuff in there. Sophie's journal is, in a, is a dig into Ameri American history, digging down into American history, which just happens to be the main character is a Muslim. So it's, there's a lot of, I'm really proud of them. Now we went from that and we said, okay, there are some other things that need to, that we need. And we moved into creative nonfiction, which is Joy Dots, Creative and uh, Crowning Venture, and also Canyon McCann and Brewing Storms. Brewing Storms is, po is poetry. And that's became very important. And now, and we have our first, we, it's, we have a, we're really excited about the next book coming out, which is Project Lena. And that's a book, it's a manual for converts at any stage in, in, con, in their conversion. I, I think it's also going to be, going to be appreciated by non-converts, but the audience, the directed audience is, is the converts. And when we did the CETA book, the CETA book is our first academic book. And that was a lot of work. So... I mean, we do want to do more and more academic books, but so those are the three voices, I would say the three voices that we find very important. We need to get literature out there, children's books and young adult novels. We need to, and even adult novels, though we haven't published any of those yet. And we need to be really publishing good and excellent creative nonfiction that is encouraging for people and life-changing. And I believe our nonfiction is that way. And then also we need academic books so that women's names are on the textbooks that people are using at universities. So that women's is, and in our case, it's the author as a teacher I told you about, and the translators are three women. I'm one of them. And then uh, Then we need a place to put the book. So we opened Daybreak Press Bookshop. And then we needed a place to, for somebody to organize our worship activities. So we had circles of light and it kept on expanding like that. Now where I am speaking, to you from today is our new cultural center or the new headquarters of Rabota, where we're really looking forward to post-COVID having some on the ground activities. We had the Daybreak, Daybreak Bookshop is now housed here. You can kind of see it behind me, but there's much more here as well that hopefully we'll be able to do in the future to uplift women and to create that positive cultural change that we're all about. <laughs> Beautiful. And um, it's so clear from your story, but just uh, just to get the question out there, um, wh why is female scholarship specifically important um, always, but especially right now? It always is, as you said, and it will always remain important. But I do believe that it has come to be critical. It's, it, it's always been important. And, and we're unique as a community that we actually have female scholarship that goes back to the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. However, even though it does go back to his time, we don't have a lot of writing from women. Very, very, very rarely will you find a manuscript where it's a female scholar that wrote it. We have records of women who are mentioned in the manuscripts of others and this and that, but not, not very many. And... Uh, Sheikh Imam 
Nedzwi out of Cambridge has done an incredible job in his research in bringing forth the names of women scholars over the past 11 centuries, 14 centuries. Uh, I said 11 for a reason, but we'll just say 14 centuries. The reason I said 11 originally is because a lot of times when I look at the, the history of women's scholarship, I see the colonial era as an era of really dampening any sort of female scholarship that we might have otherwise had. And yet the colonial era also brought with it a globalism because we have the media of starting with radio to newspaper to the internet, we can say media that has created this global culture. So not only are and not only do we as Muslims have fewer female voices and scholars and teachers, but we, the rest of the world is talking about female scholarship and, and care and, and women are speaking and having a voice in other fields. And I know we can have a long discussion about in which fields and all of that, but nonetheless, there are women's voices out there. And especially I think because of that, we are responsible for the next for our own generation for your generation the university generation who are, they're going to the university they're hearing about feminist ideas they're understanding the importance of women's voices and they're looking around and they're seeing that women are still asked to pray in closets at their massages this it's a critical time for us as muslims to know that if we don't take care of women not just take care of women i'm not talking about buying them a bag of bread okay I'm talking about taking care of women and young girls, our education, the development of our Muslim mind, the development of our Muslim mind so we can interact with this faith in a healthy way that is rooted in sharia, blossoming in ibadah, and close to, to the core of the sunnah of Rasulullah If we don't do that, our next generations will be lost. It is a critical time. We must get, and I believe not only do we have to do what, what we are doing, which is educating women. And we have our first graduating class this year in Islamic teacher certificate. And our next certificate is the religious leadership one. And we are intending to provide the people, the women, so that communities can start to hire local female scholars. Every community, as they have an imam, they should have a female scholar. They have a male and a female scholar. They don't have to, not married, not a married couple. It should not be a married couple. It should, they should not be a married couple because each family, it's, I mean, that's a strain to carry a whole community. And every community should budget for two people so that they can take care of the community and take care of our young people. And so we are, we are working to graduate those women. And of course, there are others around that are doing other courses and things like that. But I don't believe anyone is doing a program like we're doing it, which includes both the, in, the intellectual, academic learning for women, by women, and also the terbiyan, the spiritual stretching and growing that is so necessary in order to reach that place that, um, that we need to reach if we are really going to leave this legacy. Beautiful. Thank you so much. I just have one last question, and then, inshallah, I think we're going to open it up. Uh, for a Q&A. Um, and that, that last question is, what advice would you give all of us um, for to grow spiritually? In order to grow spiritually, there's a lot that we have to understand. 
but I, I, I mean, this is a, this can be a whole, that is a whole halaqa, a whole, right? So I think that what I can say is be serious about learning your Islam from an actual curriculum, not just YouTube videos. YouTube videos might be motivational, but that's not a solid learning. I, of course, I suggest Rebot, but there are other programs out there as well. I also really want to recommend that you pay attention to the concept of suhba. Suhba meaning who are your companions. Everybody needs to have friends that help them on the way, but also to have a teacher, someone who is a mentor, someone who is, a, who is further along the path than you, who can guide you and help you and tell you things like read Surah Al-Baqarah if that's what you need to hear and what you need to do. And I think the third thing I would say is is stay focused on some level of ibadah schedule. Like there has to be some ibadah schedule. Tahajjud is the keystone habit. And tahajjud and some dhikr in the day, remembering that when you're menstruating, you don't want to have seven to 10 to 15 days where you don't have any worship at all. You don't want it to be time of ghafla. So add something in those days, whether it's salawat or la ilaha illallah or something that ensures that they are days of remembrance for you. A journey is not a destination. A journey is a journey. And I think really we should expect to have good days and bad days. But what we were, what I usually tell people is if you're looking at sort of X, Y axis, X axis and Y axis, and you're looking, you, it's a, a dot graph, you're plotting your, your ups and downs. Over time, if you're drawing the line, between them. You want to see that it over time it's going up. It's definitely a door of shaitan when you have a bad day. Shaitan will come and tell you, see, see how you, you're bad and you're this and you're that. So I really I, I think that um it's you need we need to be aware of that. And the other thing is that many early scholars, Bayhaqi is one of them, but really many, many early scholars talk to us about the importance of good deeds, like good deeds feed Iman. And so if you're able to increase your good deeds, like do what I, my personal advice for people is usually what is easy for you? Are you good at sadaqah? Are you good at fasting? Are you good at getting up at night? What's easy for you? Do the thing that's easy for you, but do a lot of it. Do a lot of that good deed. And that will help you do better at the things that are harder for you. And make and do your best to recognize that on a spiritual journey, we have to do our best to fulfill our fuddles first if we really are going to be doing that walk in the way that we really want to. The following questions were posed during the Q&A portion of the Women's Circle event. In the opening of your book, you mentioned that if we live by the principle of inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi to him we belong and to him we return, we will find joy in our lives. Can you expand on what that means? <laughs> yeah, so this phrase is a phrase that we have learned to say at times of grief. And that's because it's a phrase, it should be a phrase of comfort. Comfort. That there is, if we remember, if we know that we belong to Allah and that we're going back to Allah, and we know who Allah Azza wa Jalla Jalalu is, and we can think about and know that, and really know who Al Rahman, Al Wujud, Al Aziz, Al Ghafar, Al Ghafur, Al Tawab, and all of the names of Allah, but really knowing these names, 
and understanding that these names help us to understand who, the majesty of God. This is our creator, Allah. Then the problems of dunya should shrink. And we should know that in all things is a return to Allah. So whether that's the, the great, for in, in grief, for example, when someone dies who you love. So when Asa Samira died, Sheikh Dr. Samira died, I was, because of Allah's incredible blessing on me, I was actually in, in Damascus at the time. And I can't, I don't know really how I would have handled it if I hadn't been there. I'll just be honest with you. And when I went to visit her at her grave, I went away with this awesome gratefulness to Allah that for the grave, I realized and knew then that graves are for the living. The graves are for the living. The, the, the dead don't care where they are. I mean, the dead, the dead have, there's, you know, there's all sorts of aqidah stuff about that. But I mean, I felt at the moment, the grave, graves are for the living. It's a place I can go and connect to the reality of this person. I know that when I talk to her there, she can hear me. Allah, what kind of a blessing is that? And this is an example of inna lillah wa inna ilayhi raji'un. This is the idea of Allah, all things, everything. We are for Allah. Everything is for Allah, everything. So when we are jealous and when we are frustrated, when we are wrapped up in things of this dunya, I mean, what are the things that upset us? Really, really, what are the things that upset us? We're fat. We're bet we feel betrayed. We're broke. Um, we feel jealous. All of these things that upset us are things of this dunya. Very, and what you find if you go around and talk to people, and I, I haven't done this research, but I have friends and acquaintances that have done research on trauma victims, the Bosnian rape victims, you know, really serious problems. This is not these, these little things. And they, they're always there. They have joy. Why? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is taking care of them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, is compensating them in ways we can't see. But for us, when do we get miserable? We get miserable because we're distant. We get miserable because we're so worried about those extra 10 pounds. Oh my God. Oh my God. Who cares? Your soul does not get fat. In fact, our souls are anorexic while our hips can't fit through the door. Because we don't feed our souls, you know, like we don't, uh, we don't give our souls anything. We're so darn worried about we want a skinny body and we don't, I have no problem with a skinny body, but let's have a skinny body because of a food habit, not because we're spending hundreds of dollars a month on somebody else's ridiculous diet. And so that we're, miser we're miserable because some man betrayed us, right? Or some friend didn't invite us to a wedding or some, who knows what, like, you know, some friend that we're supposed to go have coffee with had coffee with somebody else. Really? Like, really? This is like, oh, he wants to marry somebody else. Okay. You know, I know that that's painful. I'm not belittling human pain, but the fact is if Allah is first, all human pain dissipates. It changes. And human, and I, I want to be careful because I actually am a person who does care about human pain. And I do want to help people that have pain. But I also really believe from my own life experience and also just because I believe this is the teaching of Islam, that if we fully connect to Allah subhanahu wa if we fully understand the power in that, who, 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 who,
Allahu. If we really know that, there's nothing can phase us. We, and by the way, that doesn't mean we will never have grief. When I promised you joy, I didn't promise you no grief. Grief will come, and but it'll be a healthy grief. That's okay. The Prophet ﷺ had grief. We should not be afraid of grief. Part of being able to experience, there's joy in being able to experience grief. But denying ourselves grief and denying ourselves real human emotions, is there's, that, there's a problem in that. So the... Yeah, so I mean, obviously, I could talk about this for a long time, but the just knowing and, and reviewing this concept. In my Aqidah class, I do a, an entire semester just on Tawheed. <laughs> and I don't even do Asma'ala al-Husna. I do everything but, because there's a separate class for that. And it's it's not because, and on one hand, I want to say it's not because there's so much to learn, because I feel like I keep repeating the same thing, but because there's, we ha we have, so many veils to move aside in order for us to fully understand and comprehend what that means. Can we have the same experience seeking knowledge here or do we have to go overseas to a traditionally Islamic country? Absolutely, we absolutely can do it here. And I mean, Ribat is there as the substitute for traveling. We really have a, a, the curriculum is the same and expanded even for needs that are Western. Uh, but I also would say that so many women that I have met on my road have been have been doctors or dentists or teachers or pharmacists or engineers, electrical engineers, or so they've pursued secular paths and secular studies, but they pursued their Islamic studies at the same time and their terbiyah. And absolutely, it is possible to remove these veils that I talked about on that path. Absolutely. What advice would you give to someone grappling with their faith? So it depends on where the, the grappling is. So I, I teach a class called Foundations, Flounderings, and Faith. And in that class, I we go through like some sort of basic aqidah things. And then we just deal with all of these questions that people have like around different women's issues and all these things, it's the, the things that feel unfair, um, depending. Every class is different because it really depends on the audience that's there and the questions that they have. So if the floundering the doubts are fly call them flounderings. If they're if the floundering is connected to sort of the way Muslims act, the things that are Muslim that are happening in Muslim communities, the the stuff that has entered the heart that we've been afraid to talk about around the Prophet or around Sharia or around anything, then I suggest a class a class that gives you the opportunity to ask those questions. If the floundering is a real distance from Allah Subhanahu then I suggest uh, the repetition of la ilaha illallah. Like really force yourself a thousand times a day to say la ilaha illallah and push it. Push yourself to do that for a few days. And you're going to find your heart moving away from shaitan. You're going to find your heart calming. And from there, you're going to be able to find, or the, the one who is dealing with this is going to be able to maybe identify the reason for the distance so that they can decide how to pursue the solution. So I talked earlier today about the difficulties I had in the early years, and I was a white knuckler. So I'm, I'm, I think in my older age, I'm working on not being a white knuckler. I'm working on more vulnerability and being gentler and just really more vulnerable and really honest about struggles that I've had. This is something new for me. I generally would prefer people to believe I never struggle. <laughs> That's all my life. I've not, I've wanted to be superwoman. And so during those hard times, I was, I was, I 
I was white knuckling it, you know, like just holding on so tight, just so tight. And I, I do think, even though I think there's, there's, it's important to be vulnerable and talk to people who you can trust. I do think there was some kind of benefit in the white knuckling in holding, in, in, in holding myself to certain rules. So certain rules, like, even though I'm having a rotten day and even though I am, oh my God, I cannot believe this Muslim did this. I'm still going to pray. Even though this other thing, you know, whatever, I'm still going to, I don't know, I'm still going, I mean, I'm still going to pray. I'm still going to wear hijab. Those are probably the two things that would be the things that I'm seeing people struggling with today. And so I, I do suggest that it's okay to be tough. It's okay. Like it's definitely, I'm not recommending that you become me, <laughs> but that, that you try to pretend like you don't have feelings. No, but it, there, it's okay to be tough. It's okay to be strong and wait for the moment that you have the opportunity to talk and learn with someone who is ready to help you through those things, but definitely look for them. So just to summarize, I would take, I would take the foundation. I would recommend to anyone to take the foundations, flounderings, and faith class. Uh, second, I would repeat la ilaha illallah at least a thousand times a day. If not, a hundred. Like, don't say I can't do a thousand, so I'm not going to do any. Um, toughing it out is okay, too. Just make a couple of rules and continue to do them without, um, and it's okay if you're not feeling it, but just I'm doing it anyway because I want to be on the other side of this trial. And I was going to say another one, but I, it left my mind because when I said be on the other side of that trial, I had an accident recently. You can kind of see I still have a little bit left. And it wasn't a car accident. It was an accident with a cargo hook. But uh, somebody, one of my students found out about it later, not right away. And I was joking to her about how, um, you know, it was so bad before. And, the, you know, you should have seen the other guy. It wasn't the fight. It was a fight with a cargo hook. But anyway, and she said an old Syrian expression that I hadn't heard in a while. And she said, um, Alhamdulillah, ala salamtik. I'd heard that one. So Alhamdulillah for your good health. And your safety, and alhamdulillah fi dunya na fi deen. Alhamdulillah, this is a trial of the dunya of something that not in your deen or your iman. And so we need to recognize that a car accident is a trial, and a trial of faith is a trial. And there, I would say the trial of faith is the more difficult one, and you need to be sort of ready to face that and have the tools necessary that you need in order to face it and seek help. Have good sahaba. Hang out with believers because you'll soak up their hand. Even if you don't talk to them, just hang out with them. Just I know it's COVID now, but even if you just get on Zoom and you're both studying, hang out with people that are lovers of Allah and that will really help. How does one get on the path to scholarship? I would ask for a few more definitions, I think, about exactly what you mean by Islamic scholarship. But before that, I would say you have to learn Arabic. Yeah, Arabic is critical. Arabic is crucial. And I've seen a lot of young young people who want to walk this path, but they, they don't really want to learn Arabic and they won't work. <laughs> you know, gotta learn Arabic. So Arabic is really important and critical. And then the next thing is to really think about where do I what do I want to do with this? Am I what are my goals? So that you can think about how you want to learn it. I don't generally recommend the academic route because academia is all about how do we learn to criticize. And there's benefit in that. I mean, Yasser Qadi went to Medina, got his PhD at Medina, and then he went to Yale and he got a PhD at Yale. But I think if we talk to him, or I mean, I have talked to him, he would say that the skills he learned at Yale 
I mean, he wouldn't have wanted to start there, right? I mean, he came to it with a level of knowledge that what he was learning at Yale made him a critical thinker. But to start with that, you don't get that sort of depth of Islamic knowledge that you need if you want to be on the path of scholarship. To be on the path of scholarship, you need to know, you need to study subjects and traditional subjects like ulum, fiqh, tarikh, history, all the things that we teach at Ribat. And we do have religious leadership certificate. Now, uh, I would, if for somebody like you, I don't know, I would, you, you would, I would, we would have a longer conversation about what else are you doing? What else are you studying? Because Ribat is not set up to be in place of a secular education. And that is intentional. Uh, one of the reasons it is intentional is because the situation of women today, unfortunately, means that it's often very important that we have a secular degree that we can fall back on to make money. And so I really encourage women to get a secular degree, whether it's, a, if you're going into Islamic scholarship, a teaching degree is really good because you have those teaching skills. You don't wanna be a scholar who can't teach. It's, you don't wanna have all this knowledge in your head and you don't know how to present it to people, right? Uh, or a communications degree. Those are all good things that go along with that. And at least you have a degree that is secular so that you can get a job if necessary. Non nowadays, I've started recommending that people get a master's in nonprofit, you know, that they get a nonprofit or business degree because I've learned that Islamic scholar, you know, tafsir doesn't help me run an organization. It does in its own way, but you know what I mean by that. Of course, Astaghfirullah, tafsir is, our, is what we need to help us understand the Quran. And the Quran is a guide for all things. But I think you know what I mean. Like there are certain things about nonprofit that I had to go out and learn. And it was a, it was a, I'm telling you, it was a steep learning curve. Mm -hmm. Alhamdulillah, I love to learn, but it would have been tough. So that's another great place, this great thing to study on your road of Islamic scholarship. If you decide to, no, I just want to study this, then I guess I would suggest Malaysia, Islamic University of Malaysia, because then at least you get a degree. But you can also get a PhD from them, even like it, there's a lot of options out there. There's a lot of options out there. You could have a master's in nonprofit, be studying with Ribat, and then go get a PhD in Islamic studies from Islam from the Islamic University of Malaysia. They have a special system set up for such for such situations. So there's just a lot of options. Um, definitely, but the, the road is Arabic, memorizing Quran, and then learning subjects. And again, I encourage all young women to get a secular degree to fall back on for financial purposes. What is the importance of sisterhood in growing spiritually? Um, oh, so critical. I mean, my friends just, just, well, first of all, just being with women that are on the same path as you is incredibly inspiring because you're seeing them in their life. Women's life stories are more similar to one another than a man and a woman's life story, just because of the way our lives work. And if you have, if you get married and have children, that's a different life trajectory. It's different. You've got babies. It's hard. It's different. Um, but also, and, and the whole concept of living in the shelter of each other. But I, I want to actually say something, if you don't mind, about this that I think is really important right now, which is different than my own life experience. Which is that I believe that very sadly we are in the middle of a certain type of oppression of women. And that is an oppression that has made it so difficult to have loving relationships between women without being accused of, or even internally wondering, 
if there is a LGBTQ issue going on there. And this is a, to me, this is an oppression of women because women historically and across geographies, if you read and look back at so literature and, and studies, you'll find that women have always needed women, always needed women to help and support them, to help them to grow. And they've, we've loved women in a very beautiful, spiritual, healthy, friendly way. And it's, I mean, when I was in sixth grade, we wrote BFF letters to every girl in class with little hearts all over them. You can't do that anymore. You can't do that anymore without somebody wondering, what do you actually mean? And this is a, I believe that psychologically over the next 10, 20 years, we're going to see the effects of this on women. If women are looking for all of their emotional support from men, one man, (laughs) this is not... Muslim, if Muslim women are looking for all of their emotional support from one man, it's going to strain relationships and it's going to be very difficult. We need women in our lives as good friends, as sisters, as people that we look up to, people that we help along, and people that we love in a very clean, beautiful, spiritual love. And that has been stripped from possibility anymore. And so I think it is something that as Muslim women, we need to continue to set a good example of how this is possible, how this is beneficial, because the rest of the women in the world need it too, not only us, every woman needs it. Every woman needs it without the sexual pressure that the world is putting on her now. So I, I, I kind of went out of your topic. I'm sorry about that, but I'm, I'm very passionate about it and I'm, I'm concerned for the next generations. Jazakallah khair. Thank you so much for sharing your story and wisdom with us. Inshallah, it's a benefit to everyone that's listening. Can you please close us out with a dua? Allahumma salli wa sallam wa barik ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Allahumma salli wa sallam wa barik ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina wa Nabiyyina Muhammad. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina wa Nabiyyina Muhammad. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina wa Nabiyyina Muhammad. Allahumma salli wa sallam ala Sayyidina wa Nabiyyina Muhammad. Allahumma salli wa sallam ala Sayyidina wa Nabiyyina Muhammad. Allahumma salli wa sallam ala Sayyidina wa Nabiyyina Muhammad. Allahumma salli wa sallam ala Sayyidina wa Habibina Muhammad. Allahumma salli wa sallam ala Sayyidina wa Habibina Muhammad. Allahumma salli wa sallam ala Sayyidina wa Habibina wa Nabiyyina Muhammad. اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ونبينا وحبيبنا محمد بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله الحمد لله رب العالمين الرحمن الرحيم مالك يوم الدين إياك نعبد وإياك نستعين اهدنا الصراط المستقيم صراط الذين أنعمت عليهم We ask of you in this beautiful, blessed month of Rabi' al-Awwal that you open the door for us of love of the Prophet We ask of you, Ya Allah, that our hearts, the veils of our hearts, the, the pricks in our hearts that have been put there by Islamophobia, our textbooks, books, websites, everything that we have read are removed and our hearts are left clear to love the Prophet We ask that our mind can know him, that our heart can know him. We ask, Ya Allah, that we can be counted as part of his ummah, 
Now we ask that when he turns around on the day of judgment to look at his ummah and he watches part of it walk away, that we are not of those who walk away. Ya Allah, don't let us be of those who walk away, but let us instead be of those who are standing close to him, next to him, arm and arm and arm, next to the very, the closest of the close. Let us be of the sabiqoon. Let us be, Ya Allah, of the, for, the front runners, the front runners of our time. Ya Allah, let us be of the front runners of our time. Make us of those who pray to Hajjud. Make us of those who memorize Quran. Make us, Ya Allah, of those who truly love the Prophet Sallallahu Ya Allah, we ask of you that you make us of those who love you and love those who love you and love the work that you love and the lifestyle that you love and live a life that you love. Make us of those who you love. Ya Allah, Ya Rahman, Ya Wadud, Ya Rahim. Ya Ghafar, Ya Ghafoor, Samihna. Forgive us, Ya Allah, La ilaha illa ant, subhanak inna kunna min al-zalimeen. We turn to you with the dua of Yunus, asking of you, Ya Allah, begging you, Ya Allah, that you take us out from the stomach of the whale that we are in. We are not in the whale as he was, but we are in a million problems. We are in the middle of, the, of many, many veils, thick veils, thick skin, thick layers that have separated us from you. We turn to you as Nabi Yunus turned to you and we say, La ilaha illa ant. Subhanaka inna kunna min al-zalimeen. And we ask of you, Ya Allah, that we might find ourselves on the shores as he found himself on the shore with the cure next to us and knowing what to do and with a solution for our problems as he found. Ya Allah. Ya Allah, guide us and guide through us people and lands. Make us of those whom you choose for the work of prophets. Make us of those whom you choose for the blessing of ilm in this religion. Make us of those whom you choose for the blessing of of the, of the Arabic language. Make us of those whom you choose for the blessing of Quran. Allahumma ya fattah, iftah alayna. Ya Rahman, irham alayna. Ya Latif, we turn to you and we beg you that your lutuf will be rained down upon us. Allahumma salli wa sallam wa barik ala Sayyidina wa Habibina Muhammad ala niyatan al-qabool al-futuh al-shifa' aman wa salam al-fatiha. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. نور المنازل يا محمد يا من خلق من نور ربه يا من سمي قبل يوم